biggest piece of medicine they need. Remix. Medicine Remix. Good old docs over there at Med Remix, the best station on Anchor. You guys are doing amazingly, and you do some of the best stuff out there. And uh, well, no, you know what? The best stuff out there, frankly, there's no one else really doing what you guys are doing on, in general on the internet. Shout out to the Medicine Remix. Shout out to uh, Medicine Remix who put me onto Anchor. Hi, this is my first call, and I want to say how much I love Medicine Remix. I love all the music you guys select and sample, and how you keep medicine interesting. You know. I really just want to show my gratitude for what you put out on the Medicine Remix show. Because every time that I listen to it, I just get so impressed. I really appreciate you guys put me in your uh, little intro. That is awesome. I am very appreciative of that because uh, you are my favorite anchor station. Thanks a lot, guys. Love your channel. Keep doing what you're doing. I'm loving it. And uh, yeah, just really appreciate the content. What else can I say? If you guys would please just like and subscribe uh, anywhere you see anything. Medicine Remixed. Like the shit out of it. Just click on it. it doesn't cost you anything. Move your goddamn fat finger and click on it. You're clicking all kinds of other shit at work when you shouldn't be. God damn it. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we appreciate it. And that's really, you know, the only surrogate market we have to go by. And listen, the other thing is fucking tell people about it, man. Tell your friends about us. Tell your friends. I mean, I, I'm always amazed, man, when people think people are famous. Like, I've never been starstruck, ever. And the reason I've never been star starstruck is because somebody said to me once, you know, the only reason that person's famous is because you made them famous. Right. I was like, what are you talking about? And they're like, stop caring. Who the fuck that is? Yeah. Watch how famous he is now. And it's yeah. like, holy it's like fuck, we, you're right. Yeah, we give things meaning, man. Yeah, absolutely. And and we give words meaning. We give everything, man. Meaning. And like, when people when people think like, oh, you know, my friend's an artist. Uh, he's he, the guy wants to make it big or whatever. You know something? Fucking support that. I mean, if he sucks, he sucks. But if he's even halfway good, man, you make people famous. I don't think people realize that. You make things important. And goddamn it, make us famous is what we're saying fucking tell people no but my point is is that the only way this is going to get out and it's ever going to you know get you know grow any legs to it is if people tell other people about it. and listen if you don't like it thank you for suffering through it we love you and if you like it we'll fucking tell somebody man and to be real honest the feedback that we've gotten back so far fucking great man like uh yeah, we appreciate it and we're having a good time doing it and this is our way to be creative within a field that really is an art and a science sure. but art has been taken out of it yeah so you know for for creative people in medicine and there's a lot of them there's a lot of like super sure, talented man. people absolutely this could be a forum for those people kind of looking for a different right. way to express their craft through a more creative means medicine remixed only on anchor Yeah. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Can you hear me? Yep. All right, cool. I'm, uh, I'm mixing some, uh... Medicine? <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's the, the remixed of medicine. I'm, I poured it in a big bucket right now, and I'm mixing it with a whisk. So, uh, if I die... It's very important that you remember what I did. <laughs> <laughs> and, just and just scale it back just a little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I made it extra, extra strength. So you just want to go one extra, and you should be all right. Gotcha. Okay. Um, okay. But, uh, yeah, dude, today was, uh, it was, it was a, a, a brutal one. Let me call you right back. Yeah, yeah. What up, Remix fam? It's Reesh. It's Friday. And I have some, I guess, not so breaking news for many of you who heard about iconic Linkin Park frontman Chester Bennington, who committed suicide after hanging himself yesterday. You know, not breaking news, but still just as heartbreaking, if not more, when you've had some time to let it sink in. My heart is still pretty heavy 
Uh, D actually texted me the news about this yesterday and it hit me harder than news about famous people dying typically does, you know? And I think it has a lot to do with how much Linkin Park's first album, Hybrid Theory, meant to me in high school. And to be honest, I might even go as far as to say that it might have saved my own life on, on a few occasions. And I was a freshman in high school and I remember that album coming out very clearly. It was just a few days after my 15th birthday, almost at the height of my teenage angst. And in fact, Linkin Park uh, was the very first concert that I ever went to. Um, I joke with my sister that we were secretly raised in the 90s by black sitcoms and rock music, you know, because being raised by immigrant parents meant we couldn't really turn to them for a lot of the questions and concerns we had about all things related to being American, which included issues surrounding, you know, mental health and figuring out how to navigate, especially in a post 9-11 world while being brown in a sea of white was one of the toughest things I think we had to go through growing up in an otherwise pretty privileged life. But it was real, you know, when kids in school or on the bus would yell racial slurs at us, I would just eat it while the anger just built up inside. Um, and I think that's why at the time I just really related to the angry energy of heavy metal and rock. And I was a drummer growing up too. So just the release of playing that type of music and, you know, what that offered as far as like a, like a release, it just felt natural to me. But growing up in the 90s, um, it was super interesting because like heavy metal very much shared the spotlight, I think, with gangsta rap as like the dominant sounds of the decade, unlike today where hip hop and R&B just dominates and has taken the throne as far as the most popular genre of music, I think. But back then you had like you know, Nirvana and Tupac, Eminem and Marilyn Manson, Slipknot and Mob Deep, like all kind of sharing the spotlight. So, you know, Linkin Park, when Linkin Park came around, in hindsight, I think they were kind of like my real gateway drug to the power and flexibility of, of hip-hop, in a sense. And it, it, it kind of brought the energy of, of heavy metal that I identified with um, and mixed it with the elements of hip-hop that made me feel like I, I belonged, especially since they had Asian-Americans, you know, Mike Shinoda rapping and... Um, Mr. Han DJing, but for me, it really, I think, was the unparalleled, like, melodic screams of Chester Bennington that made me identify with their sound the most, I think. I just felt the pain in his voice, and at a time where I didn't know where I belonged and felt like no one understood, I really, um, that, that album meant a lot to me, especially, you know, their first album. So yeah, hearing about Chester killing himself hit me pretty fucking hard. So hard, in fact, that I needed to talk about it and think about things out loud. So I called uh, the shrink tank himself, debunked, and thankfully I called him on uh, Anchor Interviews so we could share anything um, valuable and worth sharing with y'all listening. Um, you know, suicide is currently the eighth overall cause of death in the United States, which is alarming. And what's even more alarming is that it's the third leading cause of death in people ages 15 to 24, which sheds some light on Debunk's life right now as a child and adolescent psychiatry fellow. You know, for those that don't know, I recently graduated from an orthopedic surgery residency. And I tell D all the time that we both deal with very different types of pain um, on a daily basis. And we both dissect using different sets of skills and instruments. And I mostly deal with physical pain. He mostly deals with emotional pain. I dissect with scalpels and scissors and he dissects with words and questions. And, you know, we both graduated medical school together after rotating through all the subspecialties of medicine. And let me tell you that for me, a 5 a.m. to 9 p.m. day of surgery was less exhausting than a 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. day of psychiatry. Emotional pain is just on another level in my opinion. So big ups to debunk for doing what he does. You know, for the next day or two, we'll be playing some really heavy but important shit on the station, um, you know, from my conversation with D. so stay tuned for that. So, I'm depressed, and, uh, and not the way you normally hear that, like, oh, I'm so depressed, Kobe retired. Um, I mean, like, I have clinical depression, the mood disorder, and I've had it for as long as I can remember. So, I knew I had to go to a psychiatrist and get antidepressants. So I did, and the antidepressants worked, sort of. 
they definitely raise the floor on my mood, but none of these pills are panaceas. They just kind of lessen the symptoms. Depression to me has always felt like a virus that attacks your brain with negative thoughts. Like, and the medication staved off some of the thoughts, but a lot of them would still break through and would leave a void in their wake. Like, to say I have low self-esteem is not true. I have no self-esteem. Like, I don't have the architecture for good feelings. You give me a trophy, it'll just slide right down. Like, I, I just don't have the shelving. In fact, I used to have to carry around an index card of funny things I'd written or said or directed just to try to remind myself that I was okay. Depression feels like you're wearing a weighted vest. I, I, I always felt like I was at a, at, a, at a disadvantaged mood or energy-wise to my peers. I, it was never life-threatening, it was just life-dampening. And the medication could take some of the weights out of the vest, but I still came across people as either bored or cold or superior, none of which I wanted to come across as. People with depression have the reputation for feeling sorry for themselves or that they fell into a bad mood and were too lazy to get themselves out of it. But believe me when I tell you, I'm not lazy, nor did I approach this lazily. Like, I went to a psychiatrist and a psychologist, and if you don't know the difference, congrats, you're having a great life. I became a vegan to feel better. I quit smoking to feel better. Pretty much every exercise plan there is, I try to feel better. Meditation, I went on a seven day silent meditation retreat. Medication, I've tried every medication they have, and they all have side effects, whether it's, it's uh, weight gain, weight loss, nausea, grogginess, memory loss, which for my job is not good, and yeah, and worst of all, dick stuff. <laughs> so I'd been on antidepressants for 17 years, and finally I was like, I have to do something, I have to try something else. So I, I, I was so sick of the side effects that I was like, I need to throw a Hail Mary. So heard of this drug, ketamine? Yeah, if you know what ketamine is, it's a horse tranquilizer that's also a party drug, and they've started prescribing it for depression. I know it's legit because I saw it on Reddit. So I found a doctor that prescribes it and I went to his office and uh, could, I can't explain to you how normal this doctor's office was. Like a bunch of other people waiting for other doctors, uh, fill out the form, old magazines. They call me back into his office, put an IV in my arm, drip ketamine into it, and I trip my fucking face off. On a Tuesday afternoon in a doctor's office, immobile, out, music festival level, not on this plane, <laughs> gone. But, and it lasted about 45 minutes, but the come down was rough. Like when I came out of it, I just felt like, I felt like, like, like I just came out of surgery, which makes sense because it is an anesthetic. So I decided not to do it again and then woke up the next day and felt better than I'd felt in months. And I was like, fuck, I gotta do it again. Did it five more times in the next two weeks. But yeah, but long term, the side effects from, from ketamine were bad for me. It was like I got nauseous for months, I was groggy for months, and worse than that, my eyes burnt for four months straight. It was crazy. So that didn't work for me. Then I heard about something called TMS. TMS is short for transcranial magnetic stimulation. All right, so this another, looked it up online, go to a doctor's office, and they put a contraption on your head, looks like kind of a halo. Uh, and they basically shoot magnetic beams into your brain, about an inch deep into your brain, to a certain area that stimulates uh, growth and can alleviate depression, allegedly. So I did that, that lasts about a half an hour of just, in, it just feels like tapping. It just feels like a kind of a shitty woodpecker. <laughs> You're like, okay, okay, let's wrap it up now. Um, and by the second treatment of that, I felt great, like something definitely lifted. The depression's still with me, but it's not nearly as bad as it was. I ended up doing a total of 45 half-hour sessions of TMS, which is a lot. And the reason I itemize it is because when you have a, any kind of mood disorder, it's not provable to people. All I have to show you is my work. Like, I had 45 half-hour sessions. It's really aggravating when you have a mood thing because people you can feel people's suspicion. Imagine if you had a cold and people were like, he doesn't really have that cold. That stuffiness is a choice. Yeah, it's really frustrating and it speaks to people's ignorance. Yeah. 
Yo, what's up, brother? Chilling, chilling. What's good? Super sad about, like, you know, just yeah, just recently, like, you know, when Prodigy died, like, that, I was definitely sad about that because, like, you know, I, I listened to, to Mob Deep a lot, like, you know, growing up. Linkin Park was the first concert that I ever went to. That's a fact. Oh, really? Uh, the, yeah, Nassau Coliseum, either, like, eighth or ninth grade, and I remember that was the first fucking concert that we went to. It was fucking amazing. We were huge fans, and their first album, man, it really honestly got me through some very dark and tough times in uh, in high school. Like, I was not uh, a happy kid by any means, yeah. like, um, in, in high school, just because, like, just the amount of pressure to, like, to, to excel and to, to get into the best possible college, and then you just burn the candle at both ends. Residency comes close, obviously, just with the, the sheer, just, like, how you stretch yourself in every possible realm of your personal health, like, from your mind, body, heart, and soul. But, you know, high school was, it was probably a close second, just because, like, that, you know, I busted my fucking ass. But anyway, like, right. I, I that, that Hybrid Theory album, really, like, I, I just played it on repeat, and that was still when we had, you know, CDs and shit, I'm, I'm pretty sure, because, like, I don't, I don't think right. the, the iPod came out until, like, 2003, 2004, something like that. Maybe even later, right. I don't know. I just remember, like, I just played that album, Hybrid Theory, just, like, on repeat, and it was just, like, fucking, it was, like, medicine, motivation, it was, like, fucking, it, it was, you know, when you, when you texted me that, that he, he died, I was just like, what the fuck, man? You know, this, this is definitely one of those uh, deaths that it's interesting because, like, you know, sometimes you don't feel anything, but, you're, you know, I didn't listen to Prince growing up, like, so, but, like, I understood, you know, how big of a name that was for the world to lose. But, you know, I never connected to his music like I did with, you know, Linkin Park and, like, Jay-Z and, like, whenever it is that these guys pass on, like, that's going to be sad. But, uh... Yeah. I never cry when Pac died. But I probably will when hope does. And if my tears hold value, then I will drop one for every single thing he showed us. You mentioned sort of like identifying with what your internal struggles were. And I don't know if you know, but Chester Bennington, he had a, a weird sort of upbringing. I think his mom was a nurse and his dad was a detective for uh, child abuse and molestation cases. And, really? Yeah, which is interesting because he later came out and uh, disclosed that he had been sexually molested from like, I want to say the age of seven to about 11. And he didn't talk about it until adulthood and had like the classic, you know, kid is molested in sort of his preteens and starts fucking drinking at a young age. He starts abusing drugs at a young age. He, he uh, just starts being a real fuck up. And he came out later in an interview, and I don't think there's any audio of it, which I've always found really, really strange. They were always just written reports, but you know, maybe he never felt comfortable talking about it in vivo, but um, he talked about how he never told anybody about it because one, he didn't want people to think he was gay. And two, wow. yeah, and two, he didn't want people to think he was lying. And which was a, a weird, fucked up thing to have to read to think like wow you could have something that fucking horrible happen to you and the thing that holds you back is not even the act itself it's the the fact that people might label you as being a homosexual which what a right. fucked up thing to have to deal with at, at a young age but he um he eventually only disclosed who the person was all people know is that it was an older male and uh he only disclosed the identity of the person to his father and hmm. decided not to, not to per pursue it legally and press charges after he learned that the guy who molested him was a victim of child molestation as a kid so he, even in the wow. fucking darkest, yeah, even in the darkest fucking moment of his life, he was able to empathize and really have compassion for his abuser in a weird sort of poetic way. I don't know, it, wow. it, it, it's fucked, it, you know, it's fucked up, but it's brilliant at the same time, if that makes any sense, you know? It's a it's like fuck. real true empathy, man. It's like yeah. next level like empathy. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, like I grew up, you know, really identified like more with just like the energy of like, especially like metal, yeah. but like, you know, the sound that Linkin Park, you know, brought to it. I mean, they had like a DJ and like, you know, Mike Shinoda was right. rapping. And, 
like, you know, just how all of it kind of came together. But like really the stuff that would really be like, you know, cathartic and, you know, therapeutic for me was like hearing that guy scream, man. Like there was something yeah. in it. There was just yeah. like you felt the pain. He was like the the most dominating sound in that whole group for me. Yeah. Like even with all of the like the instruments, I, I just heard him, which is why yeah. this one definitely like I felt it. I felt it. Yeah, well get get a load of this. Um I guess at at about seventeen you know, after the, I guess the abuse stopped, he, his outlet became art and writing lyrics. Like he, he yeah. channeled that feeling, that angst, that sadness, that anger into specifically like drawing and music. Like it, it was so it, it's just interesting that you resonated with his screaming, to put it real plainly, in a way where somebody was vibrating on the same frequency as you and your own angst and your own fear and your own being lost in the world from a guy who was coming from a totally different place but with that same feeling, you know, that same sort of not knowing my way. Pretty fucking powerful, man. And I don't know if you know, but so he was buddies with Chris Cornell. Apparently, he was really good friends. Yeah. And they they talked about it uh, in an uh, interview that I just happened to remember. And I, he did a, a a tribute song. So apparently, right after Chris Cornell passed, they had to do some TV show, like you know, where they 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 did a show and they were trying to figure out what song to do. We were booked to play the show so that we could promote our single "Heavy" and play that. And it was right after Chris Cornell had passed, and they did a song called One More Light. We decided to play uh, our song One More Light in honor of him. Because it's about the loss of a friend. And apparently he, in rehearsal he couldn't get through the song because the song's about yeah. the loss of a friend and he's breaking down during like fucking rehearsal. Like that's how much he's fucked up over this. And it's interesting because I don't know if it's a coincidence but the day he's found dead is Chris Cornell's 53rd birthday. Yeah. It had you know, to like, be related. Like, I, I, it's obviously a multi-dimensional thing. It's like you can't, you know, just pinpoint, yeah. you know, one thing as far as the layers of what that guy, what his yeah. history that that you just told us about. Like, you know, lose like you know your best friend. Like, I I know what that feels like, man. Like, I right. somebody your age, like somebody that you made music with. It still hurts, man. It still fucking hurts every year when it when it his birthday or his uh, death anniversary just like knowing you know how old he would have been and his mom just threw an awesome like party for his like 30th birthday I DJ'd it and it was super emotional man it was super emotional yeah. but like I like I, I I had to do that for him his, his mom like wanted me to be like at the party but I was like you know I have to do this right. I made um, you know that playlist based on you know we were like the first generation of Facebook, there was uh, a good chunk of time where, I don't know if it was weekly or every day, he just had a practice of posting songs, put a link up like to YouTube, because I was just right. like, you know, going going back, like, you know, re reading every email, like every fucking Facebook, like interaction that we had, like any fucking voicemail, like anything that I could fucking find, man. Like, it just fucking hurts. I didn't, like, I, I don't know if, if that like helped me or like hurt me more, like all the things like we were supposed to do together. And like, you know, that's hard enough when you don't have a history, like, you know, Chester did. It's like, you can't erase that critical period of time. I don't think life is that important. It's just not. It, it is not. People get too excited about life. Oh, life, fuck you. It's not that, it's... Make a list of every shitty thing ever that's in life. Life is okay, I like life. I like it, I don't need it. I'd be fine without it. I like life, though. I do. You know how much I like life? I have never killed myself. That's how much I like it. That's exactly how much I like it, with a razor-thin margin. I like it precisely enough to not kill myself. It's an option, though. It's totally an option. I mean, I'm 49. I have two kids. I've flipped through the brochure a few times. I've thought of killing myself just to win an argument. 
You're not supposed to talk about suicide. Even to your shrink. You ever go to a shrink and they're like, have you had thoughts of suicide? And you're like, no, because if I say yes, you'll press a button and folks will run in and hold me, hold them down. But you should be able to talk about it. It's the whole, it's what the, it, the whole world is just made of people who didn't kill themselves today. That's who's here. Is all of us that went, okay, I'll fucking keep doing it. It's because it's, it's an interesting thing about life. Life can get very difficult, very sad, very upsetting, but you don't have to do it. You really don't have to do it. You don't have to do anything. You never have to do anything because you can kill yourself. If they send you a letter from motor vehicles, you have to come in and, no, I don't, I'll kill myself. You can do that. You can do that once, but you can do it. And it's interesting because even when life gets bad, people generally choose it over nothing. Even the worst versions of life, even a shitty, shitty life, is worth living, apparently, because <laughs> folks are living the fuck out of them. You ever seen somebody, you're like, how did he, he should kill himself, why didn't he not? That dude, you ever been driving and you look at the next car and you're like, oh shit, I wish I hadn't looked in that car. That was difficult to glance at, let alone being it. Just a guy in a, in a tan car. Nobody chooses tan. Nobody picks tan for their car. They give you tan. Is that mine? Yeah, it's yours, fucking loser. Made it tan. You shouldn't even make tan cars. It's mean to make them. You look over, you see a guy in a tan car with just dents all over it and a garbage bag for a window. <laughs> what is holding up his suicide? What? is delaying it. What is keeping him from stopping being that? And what would it take? What would it take? What would it take? Both windows are garbage bags, is that? Seriously, do you know how much misery is involved in a garbage bag for a window? Do you know how many separate moments of Shit misery. I canceled my insurance. Broke my window. Duct tape. Here's the truth. Running away will not solve your problems. That's totally true. But killing yourself solves all your problems. It actually does. It even solves world problems. For you. Eh, what about ISIS? Kill yourself. Then they'll never get you. Seriously, if everybody who's afraid of ISIS kills themselves right now, then ISIS loses because they live in a world of people that don't give a shit. We're gonna cut his head off. Uh, okay. It's not fun now. Beep boop beep. I must say, I am quite fond of your Station Medicine remix. Darling listeners out there would be wise to tune in. Only here on Anchor. Beep, boop, beep. Just to give yourself permission to treat yourself kindly. A lot of people think that it's selfish or that it involves self-pity. It's really not. Remember, self-compassion recognizes the shared human condition. It's not, woe is me, poor me. It's, well, life is difficult for everyone. Everybody's got shit. And nobody cares about your shit, they care about their shit because everybody's got shit. And again, because it helps you give more to others, it's not selfish. So giving yourself permission to be kind, knowing that it's gonna help you be happy, it's gonna help others be happy. Then concrete things like noticing how you speak to yourself, asking, would I say this to a close friend? Usually not. What would I say to a close friend? And I try treating myself that way. Here in our Western culture of achievement, there's a mistaken idea that we need high self-esteem and that we have to be special and above average. So we keep comparing ourselves to others. We compare upwards and we do that often in order to feel good about ourselves when we compare downwards. The problem is this usually backfires big time because seldom do we compare ourselves against someone who we measure up fairly and competitively. And even when we do, we often beat ourselves up because it feels like we're letting ourselves off the hook too easily when we compare ourselves to somebody who we beat in certain categories. And this keeps us overly competitive and this false sense of self-esteem, it's contingent upon our most recent successes. In other words, our self-worth is entirely dependent upon circumstances, most of which we have no control over. And further, being overly competitive and having an inflated sense of self-esteem, it's not exactly qualities that most people find endearing in a partner. And for those of us who know people that chronically suffer from this, or rather make us chronically suffer from that, 
those aren't really people we want to be around and sometimes we find ourselves distancing ourselves from those people. So looking at successful people, we fail to see a lot of them suffer from burnout. Uh, the pretty girl suffers from an eating disorder. We can't see that some of our happy bubbly friends suffer from depression. We're blindsided by social media and we only see their accolades and achievements, but we see none of their struggles. And even when we're happy for them, there's a big part of us or a little part of us that falls into comparison. The more successful someone else is, the more our self-esteem takes a little bit of a nosedive. We compare our blooper reel to their highlight reel and that is super, super unhealthy. Self-compassion on the other hand, that's unconditional. Let's drop the comparison habit and develop some self-compassion. Great, that sounds really simple, and it is. It's just harder to do in the moments where we need it most. So first, take inventory of how you take care of yourself. Are you working out? Do you make time for hobbies? What activities do you find the most relaxing and enjoyable during the week? This week, no matter how busy you are, make time. Go ahead, schedule it right now, and do a few of those activities. Work out, take care of yourself, schedule some downtime, splurge on a babysitter or handle phone calls while on a walk, instead of in the office. Look, a little self-care can lead to self-compassion, especially when those things actually become a priority. And you'll find that self-compassion leads naturally to a higher sense of self-worth and one that is not contingent upon recent accolades or worse, recent failures by rivals or other people to whom you compare yourself. The healing begins in the moments when we sense that that's going on, that we're living in the trance of unworthiness and we make a kind of U-turn so that instead of blaming ourselves or blaming another or acting out, we turn the light and tenderness of attention right to where the wrongness is. Recognize and allow that you're in a trance. Okay, you go, okay, I'm judging, and the, the signs are this, you might notice you're judging yourself. So that's the big one. Usually there's that voice of the inner critic going on. Um, but you also might notice that you're justifying yourself. You're rehearsing what you're going to say to somebody else. Or you might know that you're overeating or overdrinking. Or you might notice that you're speeding up and worrying. There may be a lot of different reasons, but you stop and go, okay, in some way I'm not feeling good about myself. Recognize it and just allow it. We just let it be there because you can't begin to deepen presence, make that U-turn. If you keep behaving, you need to pause. And we investigate with curiosity, with gentleness. We investigate by asking, you know, what's really going on inside me right now? Then nourish with compassion. After we've nourished, we'll discover the sense of who we are is enlarged. Rest as that. Notice what you are and rest in it. Figure out who you are, don't apologize for who you are, and then become even greater than you naturally are at what you are. I don't know if you ever read it. There was, uh, I wanna say in the 70s, I wanna say mid 70s or late 70s actually, um, there was a study published where they took like 500 people who were planning to jump off the Golden State Bridge. Do you know about this? No. Yeah, so it was late 70s. They, they, there's about, I wanna say it was about 500 or 600 people who were ultimately prevented from jumping off the Golden State the Golden Gate Bridge in a, a pretty wide span of time from like the 30s to the 70s. A bunch of people, it became a very iconic spot for the wrong reasons and people wanting to jump off and there wasn't like security or shit like that. It was easy to do and the water's fucking freezing. So, oh. and you know, the, the whole bay is it's pretty rocky. So even if you got knocked out, you'd probably get slammed into some rocks and torn up and there's fucking sharks out there, and, you know, Alcatraz and all that shit. So it, it was a, a popular spot. Well, what they found was of those 500 people that they were able to prevent from jumping, like 30 years later, 95% of them were still alive or had died of, of natural causes unrelated to uh, attempting to take their own lives. So that study was interesting because it found that despite a true intention to want to kill yourself, that the majority of people, if they could be helped through that time period, ended up living long, presumably fruitful lives. Um, but the idea of this impulsive act you know, the, the estimates are as high as like 75% of people who, who commit suicide 
do it impulsively. And that's kind of amorphous and hard to de define. Like, what does that mean to be impulsive and do it? But of those people who make that decision to commit suicide, there's a good percentage of those people, if they make it through, if they actually attempt suicide and don't die, immediately, like literally immediately, it was really freaky because they, they, they the New Yorker did a, a, a article on it back in early 2000. And I'll never forget it because they talk about this 18-year-old kid and he decided that he was going to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. He just, that was it. He had had enough. I want to say the kid was being uh, made fun of for his sexual orientation. I could be completely wrong. I might have made that up. But I remember it was something along those lines where he was kind of being bullied and he thinks to himself, I'm fucking done. Nobody cares. He jumps. And his quote was, my first thought was, what the hell did I just do? I don't want to die. And it was after he had jumped. It was literally like he worked himself up and he just fucking jumped. And then there's another guy, like a 30-year-old dude, who says he didn't waste any time. Like he... He wasn't going to be pacing around at the top of the bridge. He, he got to the fucking bridge and he jumped. And all he could remember thinking was instantly, right after he jumped, he realized that everything in his life was completely fixable, except for the decision to jump. And that shit has really, like, for whatever reason, and it was before I even, you know, thought about even going into medicine, much less psychiatry, that it, it, I don't know, for some reason, it sort of etched a place in my heart where, I, you know, I, I've lost friends to, to suicide and I always think to myself, like, fuck, man, what kind of pain, what kind of hurt would one have to feel? I've, I've, I've felt fucking ultra shitty in my life. Sometimes for shit that I deserve to feel shitty for, for just shit that I did, and other times for shit that was done to me. And nonetheless, I I think, what the fuck would I have to feel to get to that point? What's what sort of hopelessness would I have to feel to fucking do it? To just say fuck it. I know I'm gonna hurt people. I know I'm gonna abandon people. I know I'm gonna disappoint people. But I can't do this anymore. And the juxtaposition of that with folks who actually tried to do it, and the second they let go, they had the, the privilege of thinking, fuck, I shouldn't have done this, and survived. You think, fuck, man, how many of these guys, you know, uh, Chester included, and, and fucking Chris Cornell included, who, if the hand of God could catch that bullet before it hit somebody's brain, could catch that rope before it just fucking snaps their neck and just hold them for a second and say, this doesn't have to be. That scares me because I don't know if you know this, but the statistic of psychiatrists and suicide prediction, it's 50%. We're not very good. But a coin. Yeah, it's a fucking, and that same flip of a coin, it frightens me because I think I'm good at it. I hope I'm good at it. But it's a flip of the coin in the same way that the person committing the actual act it might be a flip of the coin if they want what that outcome is ultimately because there's only one way of knowing is this the right move for them and they feel it's doing it and in that moment how long that second must feel that that half a second that you know hundreds of a second between the decision to pull the trigger the decision to take those pills that if you could just stretch that time and just fucking who knows maybe 10 percent of those people still want to do it straight rap Support for Medicine Remixed on this beautiful day to be alive comes from Gladville Gratitude Tablets, now available in gel caps. Get faster and longer relief for your fucking whining and complaining than any other brand out there. Gladville Gel Caps, for when you just need a gratitude adjustment. Now, let's get back to the amazing time you were just having listening to this station, only in your truly awesome life on Anchor. Oh, thank you. It just fucking terrifies me that as a person who's at least somewhat of sound mind and body, I know that I think from the outside I can assess a situation and, and say, you know what, I'm concerned for this person's well-being. You know, I think we should admit him to the hospital. That's, that's a total judgment call based on what? Based on what? I, the, the statistics show it. We're batting 50%. We can guess. And, and that's as good as we're going to get. But the emphasis is really on the people around those people to take those sorts of statements seriously, to, to really not be afraid to have that conversation, to really put themselves out there to say, hey, man, I just want you to know that if you ever had this fucking thought, you know you can call me and not have to feel bad about it. I don't think people 
have that conversation very often. Nobody wants to think that that's even a possibility. But we know the risk factors. I'm sure you remember that that fucking mnemonic, that sad person mnemonic in, in med school. The, the way really that I remember it when we're assessing for somebody's suicide risk, I just think of Robin Williams, right? Because if you're more likely if you're a male to commit suicide or at least co commit attempt suicide successfully, meaning actually take your own life. His age group, right? Because he was an older guy and anything over 59 and being a male, but also being between the ages of 15 and 25, which is weird because Cornell and Chester both didn't fit that that age range, which is almost more hurtful, right? Because you're kind of like they're in the, the prime of their life. It almost yeah. makes more sense when you're, when you're 60 or over because you're kind of like, well, maybe that person feels it's over for them. They're over the hill, it, it, their, their youth is gone. And between the ages of 15 and 25, it's under, understandable that that's a fucking hormonal soup nightmare of growing up and trying to learn to be a person. So it, it, yeah. those ages almost make sense. But, you know, and of course the D for depression and the P for previous attempts and the E for, you know, fucking excessive alcohol use and all that shit. People can look that stuff up. But for the sake of going through it, loss of rational thinking, you know, either somebody's psychotic or they got some other illness going on. If they're single, divorced or widowed, if they've ever had a serious attempt in the past, which it's hard to tell with, you know, with everybody you don't know unless they tell you or ended up in the hospital, no social support. Again, we're not good at predicting it. The only way you're going to know is if somebody wants to ultimately tell you. But I think not enough of us ask and not enough of us take it seriously. I think that that's uh, a thing that once you have it happen, once, you know, you, having a close friend, like you would not be the person to take words like that lightly should you ever hear them again or hear them for the first time from somebody or feel the obligation to ask somebody, hey, man, you know, are you having thoughts of hurting yourself? you probably would never miss that opportunity. But I think for people who haven't, unfortunate for them, suffered a loss of life in that way, I don't I don't know how many people would ask. Know if that's in people's psyche to even bring it up, to even mention it. And that's the part that's scary because if a close friend isn't willing to ask, how many doctors do you think you're willing to ask or even think of it, you know? I, I, I would hope more because we're trained to do so, but uh, I, I don't know if I could prevent it. I would hope to be able to spot it a serious enough issue that, I mean, what, because it's consistently like, what, the ninth or tenth most common cause of death in this country? I mean, that's fucking yeah. crazy. That, that shouldn't be an awkward conversation to have for something that fucking frequent. And yet, here we are. Straight rap. Electroconvulsive Therapy, Part 1. Do you realize that right this second, right now, somewhere around the world, some guy is getting ready to kill himself. Isn't that great? Do you ever stop and think about that kind of shit? I do. It's interesting and it's true. Right this second, some guy is getting ready to bite the big bazooka because statistics show that every year a million people commit suicide. A million. That's 2,800 a day. That's one every 30 seconds. There goes another guy. And I say guy, say guy, because men are four times more likely than women to commit suicide, even though women attempted more. So men are better at it. That's something else you gals will want to be working on. Well, if you want to be truly equal, you're going to have to start taking your own lives in greater numbers. I couldn't commit suicide if my life depended on it. I don't think a writer could ever commit suicide, do you? Right, would be too busy working on the note all goddamn year. Trying to get it just right. First draft, second draft, third revision, whole new ending. Finally, it turned into a book proposal and I have a reason to live. That wouldn't work. I think about stuff like that. It's interesting to me, like I said, certain things are interesting. Life is filled with interesting things. That's why I could never commit suicide. I'm having too much fun keeping an eye on you folks. Watching what you do. Human behavior. That's what I like. <laughs> Medicine's an art form. Make medicine. Motherfucking remix! Medicine remix! I'm a huge fan of medicine remix. I think what you're doing over there is fantastic. I just love the whole thing. Between the hip-hop, which you know I'm a fan of, but the fact that it's mixed with motivation, with comedy, with medicine, and the whole thing just feels like art, and there's nothing else quite like it anywhere on the internet. So, uh, it's good to hear from you. Thank you for listening. You're listening to Medicine Remixed on no other place but here on Anchor.
I like this right here. Support for Medicine Remixed on this day of pure opportunity comes from Trilanol Extra Strength Tablets, now available in liquid. If the pill that makes you try is a pill that's hard to swallow. Trilanol, for when giving up is way harder than trying. Side effects may include not regretting shit and achieving your dreams. Ask your doctor or your damn self if trying is right for you. Now, back to the realness of Medicine Remixed, only on Anchor. It's significant, man. You know, just like you said, the fact that it's even in the top causes of death, that's a real conversation. And that's why I always say, you know, at least like in the context of audio, I feel like the four medicines of Medicine Remix are, I call it the two MCs, MC, MC. It's music, comedy, motivation, and conversation, man. Whether you're in it or, or just like listening to it. And this is essentially like what your field is, like a big part of your skill set is, is that medicine of conversing with another human being and through the art of asking questions and being empathetic and trying to create a trust and a rapport and if all of those stars align, you know, you really can do with just the art of communication so fucking much, man. Like just, you know, communicating with another human being, talking to them about, you know, whatever it is that's gotten you to like that low of a point that you're yeah. actually you know, contemplating this. I'm sure they've done, you know, surveys about like how common it is, uh, like at some point in your life for people to have at least thought about it. You know, 10%. it's probably got to be a creep. It's only 10%. 10% at some point or another have contemplated, have thought about suicide. And that's a conservative. I've read as high as 25. But you want to know what's really funny is that your response right now to be shocked that it's only 10% when I talk to people who are actively having a suicidal ideation and I tell them that one in ten people at some point have thought about taking their own life, they're shocked that it's so many. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of part of it too, right? Like, you know, when you which is why music is like can be so powerful, like when you can connect with the words that somebody's saying that you feel like I'm not alone. You know, I'm not the only sure. one that feels like this. You know, that moment, different songs are different medicines to different people. It's like, you know, what you're going through at the time. And we've talked about this, the stuff that you used to pump you up at the gym or like, you know, the, the playlist that you played yourself when, you know, you and your girlfriend broke up or like whatever it is. Like, it's right. like they're, these are real therapies. And for whatever reason, like, I feel like as much as everybody kind of knows that people aren't being prescribed playlists and stuff, but maybe they should be. I don't know. Yeah, right, but, yeah, yeah. maybe. And just to sort of uh, add a further dimension to um, what we, we, we were just talking about, about how many people have thought, understand that that's an average, right? So it's really high for like college age students. It's like upwards of like 30 to 50% who have felt suicidal, you know, and I, I think that's an important distinction that the time of your life plays a big role too. You know, how old you are and what's going on and what it is you're sort of navigating through, what sort of waters. I venture to say people who are working a nine to five are, are probably too busy doing bullshit to, to even think about it, you know? Yeah. And you know what though, man? Like I, you know, you say that, but then like I'm, I'm reminded of something that I feel like maybe within our communities, we know this to be true, but that's not talked about really like on a mainstream level, but should be that over 400 doctors kill themselves every fucking year. I mean, we could do a whole podcast just about that. But yeah. like, when you, when you think about the fact that people that are really, you know, going through some shit, when they're in like a culture and, and in the circumstances such that normal business hours as far as mental health help, that doesn't apply to you. You know, like when oh, no, you're getting sure. to even barely get your oil changed or like the regular yeah. everyday life stuff, let alone actually seek help. When you think about if that's accurate, over 400 
doctors kill themselves every year, that's like a whole fucking medical school wiped out every fucking year. And when you think about, you know, how many each one of those doctors, how many patients they took care of, that's like fucking millions of people like lose their doctor every year. That's something that I feel like I haven't really learned about until recently. And there, and with the whole thing, just as far as being able to like pick out whether somebody is someone capable of doing something like that, or even, you know, whether somebody's going through anything at all, it's really also like on a spectrum because there was a guy that was a few years my senior. I think I've told you about this. He was an older guy. Medicine was like his second career. And, you know, that probably adds like a bunch of dimensions into all of it. But he wound up graduating from an orthopedic surgery residency and getting a great job. And I saw him at a conference two years ago and he looked like super happy and laughing with us, like genuinely happy to see us. And come to find out this past year, what's so crazy about the whole story and how it went down is he did a whole day's worth of surgeries, spine surgeon, and at the end of his day, sometime at night, went back into his car, had a fucking shotgun in the car, and shot himself in the parking lot of the hospital. Having that conversation, like asking the questions of why, why is that? And a lot of times it's like a cultural thing, just the culture of medicine, you know, just how fucked up it really is. Like, yeah. you know, I, I think it's just painted as like a very, you know, that's why like people I feel like, you know, aren't even trying to hear it because they're like, oh, like what does a fucking doctor have to worry about? Like driving around in, right, right. you know, like fancy car, yeah. like you guys right. have like six figure salaries, like not understanding right. the opportunity cost that went into that. Like, you know, the fucking, the debt, the fucking, the yeah. sheer just abuse on your own body. Like as far as, you know, not sleeping for days, not eating, not fucking going to the bathroom, like just really right. fucking sacrificing yourself. And, you yeah. know, for very, reasons anywhere from just being in a situation where you're like this is not what I thought it was and I can't get out or you have other shit going on. A lot of times it's just like a you know combination of a lot of fucked up things that are happening in various aspects of your life but people get divorced in, in residency, people lose oh, fuck yeah. you know like friends and you know all kinds of like it's hard enough like without having to go through anything else. Just the fucking thing itself is like enough to drive someone to that. The fact that life happens to all of us and that there really isn't the infrastructure and the support system that's appropriate and necessary to fucking have people not kill themselves. Like fucking over 400 doctors, man, killing themselves. Like, you know, it starts with a conversation, right? Whether it's one-on-one or like how, you know, we're trying to do it and really like fucking raise awareness. You know, recently, um, I don't know. Do you, do you do you listen to this cat, Logic? I play him on the station. No. And then, yeah, I mean, I've seen. That's probably where I've seen this stuff. Uh, but no, I, I haven't actively listened to. It. Yeah, so like I saw this article on on Genius, and the headline was Logic one eight hundred two seven three eight two five five inspired thousands of calls to the suicide prevention lifeline. Yeah, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline Hotline. Yeah, it said uh, the organization recently revealed that it received the second highest call volume in its history on the day Logic's tracks dropped. And the baseline searches for the lifeline have gone up 25% and many callers have directly mentioned Logic's song as their reason for calling. The interesting thing though is like, you know, you don't have to be a role model, I 100% agree, but when you do and it's like genuine and it sounds good, you know, it's so important. The music is the most, you know, uh, effective way to program the mind of a child. You know, <laughs> you know the, the words that we use and how we use them and like, you know, just the power of rhyme to really just encode complex ideas within 16 bars interspersed with hooks like you know a very efficient means of communicating really deep concepts through metaphors and like you know double entendres and the layers that you can achieve just with such a word economy and 16 bars to convey 
a message and then that ultimate thesis is the hook you know you could use that for good good or evil you know you know just like this whole logic song i'm just like super proud of the guy man like because he he just seems like a real dude and the fact that he's using his talents and his influence for something like that it's uh, it's very commendable so uh, you know to i guess like end on a hopeful and positive note you know, the things that we're trying to do with art on this station and what so many other, you know, talented people are doing and will hopefully continue to do and continue to collaborate with each other and really tackling issues like this that are super complicated, but it's it just, it's like simple. Starting the conversation. Kind of, you know, starting the conversation, yeah. man. That's it. That's really what it's, what it's about, man. Because I'm not smart enough to solve any of this shit. And I'm, uh, I'm not naive enough to even pretend that I am. But I do know that when I do have these conversations with people, that I walk away with a little something more. You know? Yeah, 100%. I've been taking my time I feel like I'm out of my mind It feel like my life ain't mine Who can relate? Woo! I've been on a low I've been taking my time I feel like I'm out of my mind It feel like my life ain't mine I don't wanna be alive I don't wanna be alive I just wanna die today I just wanna die The shit I'm talking about, they think they know it I've been praying for somebody to say me no one's heroic And my life don't even matter, I know it, I know it I know I'm hurting deep down, but can't show it I never had a place to call my own I never had a home, ain't nobody calling my phone Where you been, where you at, what's on your mind They say every life precious, but nobody care about mine I've been on a low, I've been taking my time I feel like I'm out of my mind It feel like my life ain't mine Who can relate? Give out. And I 
wanna see my tears melt in the snow But I don't wanna cry, I don't wanna cry anymore I wanna feel alive, I don't even wanna die anymore So the first, the first uh, hook and verse is from the perspective of someone who is calling the hotline and uh, they want to commit suicide. They want to kill themselves. They want to end their life. When I jumped on a tour bus that started in Los Angeles, California, and I ended in New York City and did a fan tour where I went to fans' houses and shared meals with them, hung out with them, uh, played them my album before it came out. Them, along with other people on tour and just fans that I've met randomly, they've said things like, yo, your music has saved my life. Like, you have saved my life. And I was always like, eh, what are they? Oh, oh, so nice of you, thanks. And I give them a hug and shit, but in my mind, I'm like, what? and they're really serious. And they're like, tat shit on their arms and get shit like lyrics that save their life. And in my mind, I was like, man, I wasn't even trying to save nobody's life. And then it hit me the power that I have as an artist with a voice. I wasn't even trying to save your life. Now what could happen if I actually did? And it's beyond just this song, it's the whole album. What could happen if I took myself out of my comfort zone and made a whole album about everybody and everybody's struggles, including my own, which is one that I've never done. What if I silence my own fear and I say, I'm scared to talk about my race. I'm scared to talk about the state of this country, but I'm gonna do it anyway. I'm gonna persevere. Man, how many lives could I really save then? I've been on a low, I've been taking my time. I feel like I'm out of my mind. It feel like my life ain't mine. I think it was just a record that was like years in the making, you know? I mean, also it's like, I mean, who really wants to write a song about suicide? It's hard, you know? But I was like, fuck it, I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna make the shit an anthem. That's why it's like, you know, I've been on the low, I've been taking my time. Like it's a big, like, it's just like, you hear it, like who can relate? I don't wanna be alive. I don't wanna be alive. I just wanna die today. I don't want to be alive. I don't want to be alive. I just want to die. And I think it's a bit morbid at first. Like, I don't want to be alive. I just want to die. I just want to die. Like, fuck. Like, oh shit. But I had to write this because it ain't, you can't sugarcoat it. Everything's going to be all right, motherfucker. Don't kill yourself. Like, I can't. Like, nah, man. It's got to be like, yo, fam. Like, yeah, you want to take your life. You want to kill yourself. You want to slit your wrist. You want to eat pills. You want to fucking shoot yourself in the head and eat a bullet. You want this, you want that. And it fucking sucks. I've thought about killing myself, sure, a bunch of times. But the thing is, I never, I never, th like, I think about shit all the time. I stand in the line at the grocery store and I'm like, yo, what if I punch this cashier in the face right now? That's just like, that's human being. Like, we just, that's the shit we don't be talking about that we all think, you know what I mean? But like, we be thinking that shit. And um, so I've like thought about it, you know, and I've like, but I haven't, I haven't, um, never in, in my life did I ever think about actually like committing the act for real. Um, and hopefully I, I, I am never there, but I know a lot of people who have, a lot of people very near and dear and close to my heart. Um, and because of that, I think that also served for inspiration for the song. All this other shit I'm talking about, they think they know it. I've been praying for somebody to say me no one's heroic. And my life don't even matter, I know it, I know it, I know I'm hurting deep down but can't show it. For me, I feel like this line is something that really allows the listener to feel connected because this is their outlet. That's, you know what I mean? Like the song is the outlet. You know, I'm hurting deep down but can't show it. But like logic can help me show it, you know what I mean? By, 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 by playing this song, he's letting it be known to the entire world forever how I feel in this moment. And that's a scary thing, man, because think about all the people who will never hear this song. But it's it's something that I, I feel like really needed to be said. It is a bit dark, you know, even that, like I'm hurting deep down, but I just can't show it. Think about the people who actually do show it, but don't have anybody there that loves them enough, you know? That's another person who this song is for, you know? Their parents don't give a shit, or they think they're going through a phase, or, you know, they're older in their life, and it's like, I'm hurting, I'm hurting, like somebody help me, and nobody gives a fuck, you know? And that's also why this song just being titled like 1-800, and that's how I refer to it, is amazing, because hopefully they'll be able to be like, oh shit, I do feel this way, this song is inspiring me, let me call somebody at this hotline and see if they can help. I never had a place to call my own. I never had a home. Ain't nobody calling my phone. Where you been? Where you at? What's on your mind? They say every life precious, but nobody cares about mine. I want you to be alive. I want you to be alive. You don't got to die today. You don't got to die. Now let me tell you why. The second hook and verse is from the perspective of the, the operator on the, other, on the other end of the line. You know, I want you to be alive. Let me tell you why. Here's all the reasons why you should continue to live. I finally want to be alive. I finally want to be alive. I don't want to die today. I don't want to die. 
This is one of those songs where, you know, it took me like a few months to do it. And it, it, it didn't take a few months because I wasn't inspired. It's just such a hard song to do. So I made sure that I didn't just, I didn't rush it out. I have to take my time. I have to be patient because I'm talking, because once again, the song could potentially save people's lives. So I'm not just going to go in and just, oh, this shit sound hot. Like, nah. <laughs> What's happening, Medicine Remix crew? This is Docco from the corner. This segment is powerful, powerful, powerful. And it resonates with me on a deep level because hip-hop got me through, or music in general, well, predominantly hip-hop, got me through a lot, of, a lot of dark times in my life growing up in not so the best of situations and male role models in and out of the equation and uh, not being able to fit in with white folks, not being able to fit in with black folks. And then I felt like I didn't fit in anywhere. And that kind of can take you into a dark place. But uh, a lot of times, like I always found like the right hip hop song or the right CD or back then tape fell in my lap just at the right time. So it definitely, I know, I know hip hop or music in general can, can help steer someone in the right direction or help give them something to bounce off of if they need a, a bounce board, man. But, uh, I really appreciate you guys. Keep rocking it. You're awesome. Also, I wanted to talk about the whole Chester Bennington passing thing. Thank you for articulating what Chester meant to you on the station. It really means a lot to me personally, especially as a fellow fan and somebody who grew up listening to Chester's music and, well, you know, Lincoln Park's music and Chester's voice also really got me through a really difficult time and saved my life a couple of times as well as a kid and like hybrid theory was the first album i ever listened to rock album i ever listened to and lincoln park was the first rock band i ever listened to and i ever liked and it was like a gateway for me to just like a space alternative rock rock in general just like a space where it was okay to be myself and so it's really awesome that you were able to share that i really appreciate it <laughs>